Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. Maybe you go to a social gathering that should feel completely at home and you just feel like you're a fish out of water. Or maybe you're at your job thinking like, is this really the thing I'm supposed to be doing and the the people I'm supposed to be with the rest of my life? Or maybe you're at a place where you're completely overwhelmed because life feels like you are in the middle of a performance where all the lights are on and all the eyes are watching, but you don't know any of your lines. (laughs) One of my favorite stories of all time from my wife Jill comes from her and her mom. It was Christmas time. Little Jill, about seven years old. And as she was going and they were getting ready, they saw that the kids in their church were going to do a Christmas production. So Jill showed up at the practices and they went and they got ready and it was going to be Yuletide joy. And one Sunday in early December, they got up and they were running late for church. And so as they came in, they were surprised to see a line of kids that they recognized some faces walking up the stage. And so Jill's mom said to her, well, that's probably part of the production. Go on up, Jill. And she did. And it wasn't. (laughs) And so imagine the scene as it starts, and there's little Jill smiling, when all of a sudden she begins to hear a song she has never heard before in her life. And as she looks for solace, all she could see is her horrified mom. Seven-year-old Jill does her best to fake it. Jesus, Christmas, Yuletide, Glee. And they get through. And everybody applauds and Jill breathes thinking, Hallelujah, I made it. But she hadn't. They start handing out instruments, y'all. It was a whole thing. So here's Jill with two woodblocks as the little children's choir are going to do the world's first version of Stomp. And now she's responsible not only to sing words she doesn't know, but she's the rhythm section. (laughs) And so as she goes, trying to fake all the way through, finally she gets to the end. I think the moral of the story is this. Don't be late to church or bad things can happen. (laughs) Oh, man. Can we be honest? Who feels like that is like that picture is a running commentary for your life? You'd be like, oh my gosh, that feels like so many scenes and so many days of my life. The lights are on, the show has started, people are watching, but if I'm being honest, I don't feel like I have a clue what I'm doing. 
Think about that even when we come to faith. We come to Jesus and we're told that we're saved and we're loved and we have eternal life and that's all amazing and it's all true. But what do we do now? How do we live now in these days that we're on the stage? How do we live with hope and purpose in the midst of disorienting days? We've been in the middle of a series called Prophets and Losses as we're looking back into the Old Testament to find Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament prophetic books and to answer the question how we can find our lives by laying them down. This morning, I want to go to the book of Jeremiah. And the message I want to share with you, I can only call Exiles of Expectancy. Now, as we go to the book of Jeremiah... You find out Jeremiah, we talked about him a little bit last week as we went into Lamentations, another book that bears Jeremiah's name. But Jeremiah was a prophet that was raised up in the final years of a failing kingdom. And his 40-year ministry that we get to read in the pages of the Bible, Jeremiah preached to mostly deaf ears. And this book, the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, is a compilation of his sermons and poems and essays, and some stories about him that his friend Baruch compiled. And so it's kind of an anthology. But as it comes together, this is what you find. The book of Jeremiah has a central theme of God's justice and ultimately his mercy. The book of Jeremiah is all about the heaviness the human race brought on the global stage as we failed to love and to be loved. But it's not a book of heaviness. Heaviness is only passing through because ultimately it, like every other page you're ever going to read in your Bible, is about hope. I want to tell you, if you read your Bible and you don't read hope, you miss Jesus in the pages. And he said, the whole story's always been about me. It's about heaviness, but yes, it's about the hope that God is ready to release, not only for the failing kingdom of the Jewish people, but for the whole world. Now, if we're going to step into Jeremiah and understand, we got to step back for just a minute. So let's recap our history to this point. We go back to Genesis chapter 1. We see that God made man in his image. You guys remember hearing that somewhere, Sunday school, growing up? God made man in his image. I love this because in Hebrew, the word means shadow. It's a picture of intimacy. You're never disconnected from your shadow. You're always there. And it's this picture that God made us in intimacy to receive love that we would have no filter. There'd be no block between us and him. We would see him as he was. He walked with us in the cool of the day. But it wasn't just that. You remember it used two words there. God made us in his image and God made us in his likeness. It wasn't just the picture of intimacy. It was also the picture of influence. As we receive love that we are called out by God to use our voice and our strength and our presence to release love on the earth. By the way, that's what it means to rule with God. If you ever hear anybody saying they're using power in God's name, and it is not to use their voice, their position, to empty themselves, to release love, I want to tell you to run. That is not God's power, and that's not God's kingdom. We were made for intimacy, and from that place of intimacy, influence. Why? So that all of creation could live in intimacy. You know, we didn't get far through the story. Genesis 3 We fell. It wasn't enough to be with God. We wanted to be the gods of our story. We were made for intimacy. We chose independence. We defaced our influence, and we became enslaved. But right from the very beginning of the story, you can't even get further than Genesis chapter 3 to see that God is rich in mercy. And somewhere, say somewhere, Somewhere. 
Somewhere outside of the realm of space and time, the lamb had already been slain before the foundation of the world. It says in Ephesians that God predestined the entire human race not to be lost, but to find their way back home. As he was going to write himself into the story as a redeemer who would come to the stage in the fullness of time. We fast forward in the, the story of God's people. Genesis chapter 12, he picks a man named Abram to head up a small but glorious nation whose name will be Israel. And their job, again, it's not going to save them. God's the only one who can save them. But in this moment, while we wait for the fullness of time, there to be a light so the whole world will see the undeniable evidence that God is pursuing man in love. Israel's mission was to be a lighthouse to call drowning nations back home. And in the coming years, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, this language shows up again and again and again about our mission and our purpose and our hope on the earth. We were created for intimacy. He'll come to say, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. There's no greater commandment than this. But we were also made for influence. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them, fully immersing them in what? The love of the Father so that they can walk in intimacy. Notice he didn't just say, go and be disciples. No, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. Go and make disciples. But there's a problem early in the story in the Old Testament and even to our day. Israel can't produce followers because they can't follow. There are three great sins that show up again and again and again in the Old Testament in Israel's story. And the sins are this, idolatry, injustice, and indifference. Again and again, idolatry, injustice, indifference. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about the book of Lamentations. Maybe you remember I talked about our, false, our, our trinity of false gods that we serve. And those are ego and comfort and safety. I want to show you Israel's problem is no different than our problem. These two problems is just different language for something that is one in the same. You see, as you look at this, this is what you'll see. Start over on the side of the list there, idolatry. If you look at idolatry, the serving of other gods, it's nothing more than the comfort that looks to other gods to satisfy the deep desires of our heart. It's what idolatry is. It's a chasing and a pursuing of comfort in gods that will never satisfy. You look at injustice comes to the place where ego comes to the stage. I say that it's not just enough to look to other gods. No, I'm going to live as God. And I'm going to live as God and build my own empire. And here's the problem. The pride of living for me will always result in violence toward you eventually. And so we try to chase other gods for our comfort. We try to become God using power. We malign the name of intimacy and influence. And guess what happens? When the gods that we trusted to make us secure fail, and they will, because our hearts were made for union with God and nothing else will satisfy, we're left indifferent. We harden our hearts. We walk in apathy. Our love grows cold. And it's all because we built our life on the wrong foundation. Now, if we take this back in the story of Israel, here's, here's where this starts to fall apart. Is God shows up again and again and again to tell them, listen, you're chasing ego and comfort and safety. You're chasing idolatry to want other gods that aren't going to satisfy. You're chasing injustice, trying to play God on the scene, and you're becoming indifferent. What happened was instead of them repenting, 
They simply began to change their theology to justify their lifestyle. They changed what God's word meant. And they became blind. And this is what you read through much of the Old Testament. They began to proudly stamp God's name on their buildings and their military and their money as they proceeded to build an empire that looked nothing like him. You know, I'm so glad we learned our lessons so we didn't repeat the same error. Stamping God's name on our buildings and our military and our money as we look to other gods to satisfy and as we play God on the global scene. You know, I would call the Old Testament, if you want to know how do you see the Old Testament correctly, Jesus said the whole story is about me. How do you see Jesus in the story? It's this. The Old Testament can simply be called failed attempts at reform while awaiting fierce rescue. I'll say that again. The Old Testament is failed attempts at reform while awaiting a fierce rescue. Listen, all the way back in Genesis 3, the moment they fell, two sentences later, God said, the only hope for humanity is God said, you need me to come in and rescue you, but we wouldn't believe it. He said, if you give us enough time and enough resources, enough duct tape, we can fix this. So God let us start over and form a nation and get land and make laws and raise up judges and coronate kings. But at every turn, what did we see in Israel's story? Idolatry, the pursuit of pleasure, injustice, the pursuit of power, and indifference, failed empires. Finally, we get in Israel's story, and it ends in civil war. The one nation that was to show God's love to the entire world can't even get along with themselves. They fall, and Israel and Judah both end up in exile. And that's where we find the prophet Jeremiah, as they're in exile awaiting the king's rescue. Now, it'd be many years later, that the Apostle Peter, after the resurrection of Jesus, in the midst of the church age that you and I live in, would say that you and I also are exiles that are awaiting our king's rescue. So my question is this, what do we do as exiles? If the lights are up and the show has started and we're going, what's our part? Jeremiah chapter 1, he sets the stage. God tells Jeremiah that he's got a message to Israel and to the nation. Somebody say, that's me. me. These next words, they're going to be for me. And what does God say to the exiles? He says this. He says, first of all, there are some things in your life that need to be uprooted and torn down. There's some stuff we need to lose. There's some stuff we've got to shed. There's some stuff we've got to die to because it doesn't belong to our destiny of where we're going. But ultimately, he says, I've come to plant and to build up. I have an eternal destiny that I want to call you into. And so I want to look this morning at a place where we find one of the most popular Bible passages anywhere. It's stamped on pillows. We give it away in books at graduation. It takes place in Jeremiah chapter 29. But my prayer today is that you and I would see it in a glorious, deeper light. I want to ask the question, how do we live as exiles of expectancy? And briefly this morning, I just want to challenge us to shift and to pivot in three ways. The first is this. You and I have to change how we see this moment. We have to change how we see this moment. Now, I believe we have three wrong postures that people and Christians especially take to this moment. Some live for 
the moment. Some live against the moment. And some live stuck in another moment. But we're only going to find hope as we learn how to live from this moment. I want to explain what I mean. Some live for the moment. This would be what I would call short-sighted living. This happens anytime you and I believe, without speaking it, that our deepest longings will be fulfilled by that person, that substance, that job, that house, that car, that status. Once I get this breakthrough, by the way, if you want to know if you believe that, when people ask how you're doing and you answer them honestly and you tell them how you're doing, what is it you're waiting for for life to be better and okay? See, it's all too easy for us to live for the moment, and we believe that once I get this, everything will be right as rain. And if you live for the moment, your pursuit of God will be clouded by materialism and consumerism. You will seek God so that he will fulfill something else that really is the God of your journey that you believe will satisfy. If I just follow the rules, then God will give me fill in the blank that I believe I need so that I'll be important and so that I'll be satisfied. But you and I know we've been there, bought the t-shirts. It will never be enough because this moment, hear me, this moment wasn't made to satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. We're in exile. Let's see us Lewis to say this. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, my only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Whenever the church preaches a consumer gospel of live for the moment, we will eat the prison food of Babylon because it's idolatry. The first wrong way we try to live for this moment, and we resent God because he's not given us the treasures we're seeking. The shoe fits, kick it off. The second is you find many people want to live against the moment. I'm shocked to find this day. You know what I get in more trouble for than anything when I preach the gospel? Of actually saying that Jesus is amazing and he loves people. That's what I get in trouble with religious people for. I show up and I say that the, the good news is too good and the love of God is too great because this is what I find. Many Christians live their entire life offended and even militant. They fixate themselves on a certain group that are threatening always, quote, our rights. They're threatening our rights. We need to hurry and silence them because our rights are in jeopardy. And I see this. There are two unspoken beliefs going on if you live against the moment. Number one, you believe the source of brokenness, the problem on the earth, is always them. It's never the people that look, think, and act like those that are in my club. But number two, it's that we want the bad guys, them, to be silent so the good guys, us, can be securely back on top because we believe that our hope is in this moment. This is what I want to tell you. Many people living against the moment continue to be militant until they're back on top, and then they shift to go live for the moment. And they live in materialism and consumerism. So what are they actually saying? What are they militant against? They don't like their stuff being taken by them. How do you know you're living against the moment? These people will be quick to preach a political party or a candidate or a policy or an agenda as our hope. And if everybody doesn't line up, then America is doomed. They'll be quick to pressure and persecute through what I can only call religious violence. They use God and the Bible to vilify, judge, cast out, or demonize people made in his image. How do you know you're living against the moment? You often can't see the difference between patriotism, that's being thankful for one's homeland, though it's fallible, and nationalism. 
And that would be the God, guns, and glory approach that believes that Jesus came in an American flag t-shirt coming to anoint the USA as the new Israel. I want to remind us that the hope of the world isn't in a political party or a candidate or an agenda or a nation, but in a savior who came in a dark-skinned Palestinian frame who is the God that so loved those walking in darkness, the God who so loved the suffering and the shunned and the dirty and the starving, the God who so loved the hurting and the immigrant and the second class and the sick and the diseased, the God who so loved the prisoner and the unspectacular and the unschooled and the unqualified and the unable and the unclean and the unstable, the God who so loved the oppressed and the oppressor, the wealthy, the powerful, the greedy, the dishonest, the religious, the self-righteous, the God who so loved the violent, the retaliator, the insecure, the jealous, the petty, the God who so loved the sexually immoral, the disobedient, the guilty, the caught, the shamed, the addict, the anxious, the exhausted, the disqualified, the God who so loved the ordinary, the invisible, the judged, the written off, the demonized, the pagan, the traitor, the God who so loved the beggar, the hopeless, the voiceless, the lame, the leper, the lost, the least, the last, the God who so loved the adulterer, the sinner, the mourning, the persecuted, the misunderstood, the God who so loved the outcast, the lonely, the slow to learn, the God who so loved the world. And I want to remind you, if you've forgotten that his grace is for all of these people, what you're preaching could never be worthy of what is called the gospel. So am I patriotic? Heck yeah, I am. I think America's awesome. I also think it's a fallible nation. You will never find nationalism coming out of my mouth because my hope isn't the nation of America, which means I don't need to preserve her interest. I'm one of a global uh, uh, body of brothers and sisters that come from the kingdom of heaven as an ambassador on this earth, which means when my neighbors are hurting in the Ukraine or Russia or Israel or Africa, I'm to love my literal neighbors, my literal self, even if that in some way seems to jeopardize my national interest. Sorry if the shoe fits, kick it off. We've been called to live from a different kingdom. So what's my point? Partially a rant, thank you. But I would say this, yes, there is a war on earth. I'm not talking about mamby-pamby, weak need, tolerance. Listen, tolerance is not love. To tolerate someone is not to love them. Everybody has a conviction of what you believe is destroying somebody else. And if you say you love somebody and they are running into traffic and you don't stop them in the name of tolerance because I don't want to hurt their feelings, you're only preserving your own self-interest. That's not love. There is a war. But our war will never be against flesh and blood because my God longs for all of his kids to come home. And when you and I live against the moment, we, are, we wind up committing injustice that alienates the sons and daughters he's in the process of bringing home, and it forgets the brokenness that found its home in us that should shut our mouths and lead us to love with a little more humility. Some live for the moment. Some live against the moment. Sadly, some live stuck in another moment. Most of their life, most of their thoughts, most of their fears, most of their worries 
or being obsessed with an unhealed yesterday or an uncertain tomorrow. Sorrow and anxiety keep their focus and their hopes and their dreams always off in another time and another place. And I want to tell you, last week, we had a powerful time together, and we talked about the place of grief in our life today. I want to challenge you, if you weren't here for this message, go check it out. God has a word for you if this is where you're at. For this morning, I just want to ask this question. Are you present in the present? Are you present in this moment? Or do you spend all your time living somewhere back there or somewhere up there? Somewhere of what was or what might be. See, we only find hope when we live from this moment. What do we do as exiles? We've got to change the way we see this moment. Listen to this in Jeremiah chapter 29. God is speaking to them in the midst of exile, an exile they chose for themselves. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Hear me, all that we need and all that will be isn't found in this moment, but something amazing happens when we choose to live from this moment. What do we do when we're in exile? The very first thing is this. You choose to live now. Jesus said, I came that you would have life and have it more abundantly. Choose life. Choose the fullness of joy. Look at what Jeremiah says. Build a home. Establish roots. Plant gardens, both physical and spiritual. What am I saying? Find the fruit your family brings to your community and cultivate it. Eat good food and laugh. Get married and have kids and be faithful to both of those so you see their kids grow up and stand on your shoulders. See, in an age when we're fixated on personal goals and pleasure and success, I'm afraid that we've largely lost the treasure of legacy. Jeremiah says, I want you to experience joy, but I want you to know that the greatest joy you will ever have on this life will outlive you. Your greatest joy is in legacy. Now, I got to tell you this. I love Overflow Church. Don't you love Overflow Church? I love this place. We we talk so much about the joy we see in this moment, but I want to speak for the staff right now. We were just in a staff meeting all in tears uh, about a week ago because what fuels us isn't this moment. It's the church we're leaving our kids. It's the rooms they're going to fill because we were bold enough to open the door. It's the places they're going to run because we dared to walk and to let walking be enough. We didn't need to be the superstars. We didn't need to make it all about us. But, but this is what I've learned about legacy. There's not much glory in the moment. See, legacy is a seed that you plant deep into the ground and you won't see the fruit for many years, if at all. My father's mom, my Mima. Humanly speaking, I would have to label as my hero on planet Earth. She loved Jesus so tenaciously, and we saw the reality of God that many of her grandkids came to the faith. And I say without reservation or hesitation, the reason I adore Jesus and cannot be casual about him is because of that little five foot two, 100 pound woman of power and glory. My Mima died the year Jill and I got married. She never saw a single moment of my ministry here. But guys, I'm her legacy. 
Who wants legacy in your life? Who wants something that we're leaving behind? We have to answer the question, how? How do we leave a legacy? I'm going to tell you this morning, it's this. You ready? You ready for the secret? Somebody want the secret? It's not sexy. Here it comes. (laughs) How do you leave a legacy? You see your faithfulness in mundane moments as deeply spiritual. How do you leave a legacy? You see your faithfulness over the long haul in mundane moments as deeply spiritual. You change the way you see your days. You get rid of your orphan prayers. Well, I'm not getting everything I want. Sometimes we're like the little kids at Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory as Christians. That's what I hear in prayer. Circle. I want it now, Daddy. I want it now. I want the golden egg. Somebody, have you guys, do you guys watch TV? Have you seen Willy Wonka? I'm too spiritual for that. I'm praying for my golden egg. What were we talking about? Okay. Listen. So often we get fixated on what we want now, what we want now, what we want now. I would say if we would know that God is good and he loves you and he'll never leave you, we'd have to stop, we could stop looking at the fruit right now and look at the fruit that we're planting long term. We could actually change the way we see the mundane moments of our life. What am I saying? We got to slow down. We got to develop deep roots with the people that we get to share life with. What am I saying? You don't need 10,000 followers. Just start with the people and the faces in your home. What are we doing in these moments that will build legacy? Somebody answer the question, what is it I want to leave behind? We're going to ask that before we're done today. What do I want to leave behind, and who is it I want to leave it behind to? You know, at at this moment, I think of my wife, Jill. Jill, for the last 18 years, has made a continual lifestyle pattern to embrace the mundane of the moment. She's homeschooled all five of our children, She's gone to countless doctor's appointments and errands. I'll find her early in the morning and late at night working on bills or correspondence that needs to be followed up on. And every day I see her advocating in a million little ways for their best future. And few of them are fun. We've been a foster family for five years, and I was thinking about it this week, thanking the Lord, because I want you to know in three individual lives that I've seen in my home over a long period of time, three stories They had a massive medical or emotional intervention that was needed, and no one else saw it except my wife, who was present in the mundane. She spent hours on the phone and in offices and driving and in court and before counselors advocating. And sometimes, listen, she's sweet, but you get on the wrong side of her and her mama's, but mama bear's going to come out and it's not going to be pretty. And do you know what I watched my wife do over many mundane moments? She removed their labels, and she changed their lives, literally. We had a foster child in our home that was nonverbal, and they said, he, well, he's just not a good kid. He's just an angry kid. He's just going to be angry against the world. And, and that was the label he'd been given through several other homes that came before. He's just not very smart, and he's angry. And Jill knew something in this little boy's heart, something more was going on, and she dug and dug and dug and dug through medical records to find this little boy was neither dumb nor angry. He had suffered massive hearing loss that no one had caught. He couldn't hear, so he was getting frustrated. He tried to speak, but what was coming out wasn't being understood. Of course, he was frustrated. She advocated, and as we found, he started to find language. We saw this little boy start to thrive, and people said, he's the most gentle boy you would ever meet. And I think to myself, what if 
a woman of legacy, an exile of expectancy hadn't been present in that story. How many labels are uselessly put on people because somebody didn't slow down and understand how to change their approach to the moment? So let me just say this. Moms and dads, your faithfulness to the mundane moments in your home and in your job, they matter. I'm so grateful to say Overflow Church, we've got some amazing parents. I look around this room right now, and I want to say, moms, dads, I see your sacrifices, and I know your stories. I know that many of you have stepped out of places of such deep brokenness, and you've chosen healing so your kids can stand on your shoulders, and they are. Grandparents, I've watched you make the decision to see and celebrate and bless. I love Pastor Aaron's testimony about legacy, and we're watching it all the time. There's such power in that. I'll say, parents, grandparents, don't stop. Younger generations, I want to call you to see it now your parents and your grandparents and your pastors and your leaders that are trying to pour into you, they are imperfect vessels. But if you would just trust me, one day you're going to see that these moments, something really special was trying to get planted in the ground. How much deeper can it go if we're aware? How do we live as exiles? We've got to change the way we see this moment. The second challenge I want to give us is this. How do we live as exiles? We've got to choose holiness. Maybe you've heard before that the word holy, it means to be set apart by God. I want you to understand the picture of holiness, though. It's not just set apart one way. You're being set apart from somewhere and to somewhere else. See, first Peter, he writes this. Peter writes to us. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, there's that word, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, in 1 Peter, we see both sides of holiness. He says this, what do you do as exiles? Well, first, you've got to come out from the dark desires that wage war against your soul. Come out from them. What? to a new residence that creates a path that those living in darkness can see and follow. Somebody hear me this morning because we talk a lot about holiness, but I need you to know this. Holiness isn't holiness until it calls you out from some place of darkness to a new residence in the light that others can see and follow. Holiness is obedience to a lifestyle of restored intimacy and influence. See, holiness is not, it's just my personal journey and my personal convictions, and this is what I think God's okay with me doing. No, holiness is understanding that you and I have been set apart by the king for a reason. So Jeremiah writes to the exiles, and first what he tells them is, continue to live, change the way you see this moment, build up joy, build up a legacy. But then he tells them, you got to get out of the egocentric head. You're living for something. Your holiness should be going to something. Look at what he says, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, I'm a language nerd, so two words stand out to me in this passage. <laughs> seek peace. What does it mean to seek 
I love this. In Hebrew, it actually means either a place that you repeatedly frequent. It's literally a place that you go camp out and stay. It's a place that's home or a habit that you do over and over. What does it mean to seek something? It means to go so adamantly after something. They have to go, no, that's their default. That's just what they do. That's where they live. He said, I want you to live somewhere different. Where do I want you to live in the decisions that you're making about you and God? Because we're all about personal freedom, right? The, the biggest offense I hear people today, how dare you infringe upon my freedom? I can live my life the way I want to live my life. I want to say, or you were bought at a price and therefore glorify God with your body. I don't know. It's just, if that's new, that's from the Bible. Um, so, seek peace. Where do we live? We seek peace. The word peace in the Old Testament, shalom, shows up three times in this passage. It means this, you ready? Peace means wholeness, fullness, soundness, welfare, health, healing, quiet, contentment, prosperity, safety, friendship, and reward. So when I start talking about living and choosing holiness, what am I saying? What does a life of holiness look like? I believe there are two pivots for us. Number one, I believe that we have to develop a lifestyle where we live that steps out from anything that is hindering our peace with God and our peace with others. Number two, I think we have to develop a lifestyle, make daily decisions and habits and rhythms that lead others to peace as well. What does that mean? It means as Christians we have to change our questions. I want to say to live in exile means you no longer ask the question, is it okay with God if I fill in the blank? Is it a sin if I fill in the blank? See, everything is lawful for me, but not everything is profitable. I think we need new questions if we're going to live a life of holiness. I think the question you need to ask the next time you say, should I do this? Should I not do this? Should I treat my neighbor this way? Should I not treat them this, that way? The next time when you're looking at your job of how you should act toward your boss or your home, at how you should look at your kid that's got an attitude, I think you need to ask this question. Will this lead me to deeper peace? Is this making me more whole? Is this restoring quiet? Is this promoting friendship? How would this decision bring peace into my home, in my family, in my neighborhood, in my workplace? I think the better question we could ask is what is the best thing I could do right now to see God's peace reign in me and reign in them? Do you see how that's a different question? It's not... Can I watch this movie? Can I do this thing? Can I go in this place? I would say the minute you choose holiness, you're choosing a communal lifestyle to say, no, everywhere I go, I'm seeking the peace of the city I live in. So what does that mean? It means we go to our job and we no longer think, what is it I don't like about my boss? What is it I want to gossip about at the water cooler? Where is it that it's not fulfilling my dreams? We go, oh, wait, it's not going to fulfill my dreams. I'm in exile. This moment isn't it. But I'm telling you, there's a third point I'm going to make in just a minute where you'll see where your hope comes. My hope's not in this moment. That's not why I'm here. It's not why I'm in this job. I don't need this job to do that, so maybe I can stop resenting my boss for not being God. Maybe I can stop resenting this job for not being the promised land. It's not. I'm in exile. This is work for me to do to make the world a better place. Maybe I could change my question and say, if this is my job, and I hate it, but this is my job, then how do I seek the peace of my homeland? How do I seek prosperity and quiet and contentment and hope for the people that I'm with, even that person that annoys the living daylights out of me? Something going on in your home and you're thinking, well, so-and-so's attitude, they just need to change this. So-and-so, this needs to change. These finances need to change. I'd ask the question, how do you change your question and promote peace? That's what it means to choose holiness. So what do we do as exiles? Number one, we change the way we see this moment. I'm going to live from this moment. Number two, we choose holiness. 
We say, God, I'm going to live in such a way that I'm going to see you in anything that is hindering me from walking in intimacy with you. It's got to go, but I'm going to do it out in the light so that there's a clear path that other people can see and follow. And the third is this. If we're going to walk as exiles of expectancy, we must cling to hope. We must cling to hope. And it's here in the midst of exile and brokenness and waiting that Jeremiah offers his most famous words. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Those words take slightly deeper meaning, don't they? It's not just you can get the dream house and the dream job and the dream spouse and live your best life now because God says, I know the plans I have for you. No, this is a word for exiles. He says, my best is coming when I part the clouds and you see. My best is coming when I open up the prison doors of Babylon and lead you into your forever homeland with me. Right now, you're in exile, but I need you to know something. I know you. I know you in your waiting. I know where you're on stage right now and you're unsure of your part. I know the hard stuff that you're walking through, yet choosing to be faithful. And I know the dreams that I put in you that haven't yet reached fulfillment. So you need to know there's a hope and there's a future. What is it? Listen, had we just gone past verse 11, we would have known What's our hope and our future? He says, you're going to find me fully. You're going to see me face to face. I'm coming as I promised, and exile won't be your end. So where you've lost a loved one here before their time, he says, I know the plans I have for you. If life is kicking your butt and breaking your heart, I know the plans I have for you. As a loved one, that you're coming around is sick or hopeless or wayward and you keep lifting up prayers, being faithful, and you're yearning for their freedom. He says, I know the plans I have for you. There's hope. There's a future. You will be found. I'm going to take you back to Eden. You're going to get your heart back and every hindering prison cell will be opened. I will wipe every tear from your eye. Don't dare lose hope. comes to the end of the book of Jeremiah in chapter 52. And the book ends on a cliffhanger and a really obscure story unless you see Jesus in the center of it. Suddenly in the midst of all of their exile, the king of Babylon, a wicked king, makes a weird decision to free the king of Judah and release him from prison. <laughs> Jeremiah ends this way. says this, he graciously freed Jehoiakim and brought him out of prison and he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments and every day of his life he dined at the king's table. On a historical level, that is crazy. That is insane. It doesn't happen. And this was the work of the godless 
king of Babylon. But listen, Jesus is present in the story. This is merely the shadow of something. But I want to say if the shadow is this good, a seed above kings being spoken kindly to, putting off your present garments and every day being in the royal place where God's giving you, if that's the shadow, can you imagine the substance? We don't have to imagine. Revelation chapter 19 says this. It says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters. You know what that is, by the way, what they're hearing? They're hearing all the John Wards walking free, <laughs> crying out. The rushing waters and the rushing waves are the sons and daughters of God that are finally free enough to be able to shout out to him that he is everything. And they shout, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous act of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. I know the plans I have for you. And you haven't seen anything yet. Your hope is not in your exile, and your exile is not the end. I want to tell you, if you and I could have even the smallest glimmer of hope, because I find sometimes that I will start with tears to talk to people about what's coming, and I'll watch as their eyes glaze over. Oh, Pastor Chuck, I thought you were going to give me good news. You remember when the Israelites left Egypt with Moses, and they stepped out of that place, and they'd cried out, we want out of slavery, we want out of slavery, we want out of slavery, we want out of slavery. Do you remember what happened as soon as they got out there? And they reached the first place where the river looked like they were blocked and there was nowhere to go. Do you remember what they said? If only we were back in Egypt! How quickly we want to run back to ego and comfort and safety. How quickly we want to look for spiritual messages that will come and give us that quick fix of just give me the word today. Whereas what I'm telling you in exile is if you want a legacy, there's not going to be a whole lot of glory in this moment. There's only faithfulness over time because you have faith that our king is actually coming in a more real way than you could ever imagine. I simply want to say this to you. One day will come where you will understand that this has been the dream and that's being awake forever. That this was the blinking of the eye and that is the substance. But right now, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, there are many in our city that live in darkness and desperately need exiles of expectancy to arise, to make much of our moments, to not live for the moment or against the moment or stuck in some other moment, but to live from our moment believing in our king, to choose holiness and to stop this talk about my rights and my way, but to die to ourselves and to choose anything and everything that will lead us to peace and that will cast a path behind us that people walking in darkness can see the light. And we must cling to our hope. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. I am coming back. Would you stand with me? And I'm just going to ask in this moment of activation... You could just close your eyes before the Lord. I'll ask if you just lay your hand on your heart. 
I find so often it just centers me all over again to go, oh yeah, this promise, it's not for my head, this is for my heart. Can I just ask a few questions this morning? You faithful son, faithful daughter. I want you to know something with your eyes closed and your hand on your heart that before you woke up this morning, God already thought more thoughts about you than the individual grains of sand on every seashore that has ever existed. And he calls every one of those thoughts precious. He rejoices over you with singing. He delights in you. So can I ask your heart this question? What would it look like for you to live from your moments today? Is there a place where you've been going through the mundane and you've been complaining? You gotta lay it down. You gotta lose your complaints today to go, oh God, I'm sorry, I see again, it matters. Is there a place where you've been faithful running and you just need the joy of the Lord to come again and be your strength? I've asked ministers to be here up front. You can stay in your seat this time, but if you need somebody to come into agreement with you right now, if you're saying, I've been doing all that mundane, I've been showing up and doing it, but there's no joy there. I need my joy back. Would you come and let one of them just pray for you? Can I ask you about legacy? What is it when all is said and done you want left behind because you were here? Who are the people whose lives you want to be changed? And can I ask, are you letting blessings fly by you today because you're so busy with so many other things that ultimately aren't going to matter? What do you got to lose so you can have legacy? Where's God calling you to slow down and just be present? We have a culture that is addicted to activity. We've got to go, 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 go. More things, more likes, more followers, more shares, more information, and it's getting us nowhere. Where's God inviting you this morning to get your heart back? To get your family back? To get your marriage back? To get your health back? To live in this moment? To build your home? Not because you're expecting this moment to satisfy, but because this moment is an opportunity to meet an intimacy with your God and to pour out an influence and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Can you just see the faces right now? I know my Mima saw my face often as she went to the Lord in prayer. I know many things that she prayed for me. Who are the faces of the people you're looking to leave a legacy? Would you just let the Lord put their faces before you right now? What's got to shift so you can see them? I'm going to ask right now, if you're one of those, that you're pouring out and you say, I'm just doing the best I know how to do, but I am so tired. I'm just going to ask right where you're standing. Can you just lift up both of your hands? It's just an international sign of surrender to say, I'm here. I'm going to keep doing it, but I need the joy of the Lord to come and be my strength. 
I'm tired. I put my hand to the plow. I'm not looking back. But man, I'm just not much enjoying my life right now because it's just wearing me out. Oh, Father, I just ask right now, would you come with your joy? Would you come right now? Listen, if your hands are up, you receive. If your hands aren't up, would you start interceding for the people around you? Father, would you just come right now and release your joy to your sons and your daughters? I ask that you would come and speak directly in the language that you've written into their heart that they could hear you, that they could know that it's worth it. Father, would you refuel us with your joy so that we'd run after a legacy? Just two more questions. I want to ask the question, where is God calling you to step out in holiness? Or where is he calling you to step into in holiness? Maybe God is showing you right now something you need to lay down, something you need to have no part of. I'm going to ask that you would just lay it down. You can come to one of these ministers. You could be right there, but say, Lord, no more. I'm laying this down now. For somebody else, there's a place where God is is calling you out to say, no, this has nothing to do with sin. There was a period of time where God said to me, there's something I want to do in your life, but I'm going to need some time with you. I need you to set aside this time just to be with me. I had to make a decision to be set apart to something. Would you just make yourself available right now, Father, wherever you're calling me, I want to go. And the final question for every person in the room. Would you and I come and cling to hope again? I ask every person in the room with your hand on your heart. Father, you say you know the plans you have for us. You have plans to completely prosper every good thing you desire. You want to bless us. You're coming from a high place to a low place to lift our heads delight in us and furnish us with everything we need. If heaven is dancing over us today, Lord, we want to know it. We want to see it. But ultimately, Father, would you fill us in this moment to know that we have a hope. We have a future. Maybe you just say that quietly before him. I have a hope. I have a future. <laughs> And Father, we're going to find your heart fully, face to face, back in Eden with no filter and no separation forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever in a world far more real than the shadow where we currently live as exiles. May your Father fill you with hope. May he smile upon you in grace. And may you and I walk as exiles of expectancy.